Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 604, February the 11th, 2011. It's a Friday, that means it's a show uh, where we get to hear from you guys. i got 12 calls lined up today, that's about as many as I can fit into a show. And uh, we're going to go through your calls and uh, take them one at a time, and I'm going to give you my thoughts and my answers to them. I'm going to do my best. Some of these uh, calls are ones I can kind of knock out of the park. I know exactly what to tell you. Some of them, yeah, they're a little bit harder to say, and I'll do my best, and some of them are kind of complex. You guys usually send me a mix like that, and this week is no exception. Remember, if you'd like to be heard on a show like this, all you have to do is pick up your phone and dial the numbers 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK, because we encourage you to think for yourself at TSP. And uh, we'll try to get you on. Make your call specific to the point. Follow the model that these callers give today, and you'll probably get on the air. If you call from an open window, if you use a vo voice-altering software, or if I just can't hear you, you will not be on the air. Yes, I think somebody did that, and I just did not include them. You don't have to be that anonymous, not if you want to be on the air anyway. All right, um, before we go ahead and do uh, the... Um, The, the calls. Uh, I have some uh, sponsorship stuff, like always, but I also am going to give something away today. I'm going to go ahead and do that right out of the gate, because I know some of you guys skipped the intro, and maybe uh, you won't skip it if you hear this. One of our sponsors, Ready Made Resources, contacted me, and he wants to get some uh, publicity around a uh, product he has called the Steripen Sidewinder, which is a water purification tool that uses UV light to purify water. Uh, but this particular one, the Sidewinder, uses a hand crank to run the UV light. That means it works without electricity, energy, batteries, etc. And it will purify one liter of water in about 90 seconds, destroying waterborne bacteria, viruses, and protozoa, such as Gerardia and Cliptosporidium. And you can win one today. This is what you're going to need to do. You're going to need to go to the survivalpodcast.com. You're going to need to look up today's episode, episode 604. If it is Saturday or Sunday or next week, don't bother. This will be done today and be over with. You will need to click on the link for the SteriPen in the show notes. It will be in the resources section. You'll need to go to the page on ready-made resources and look at the information about the SteriPen. Um, you will see a, um, a, a series of paragraphs. The fourth paragraph in the description will begin with, Sidewinder comes with a BPA-free uh, one-liter bottle. And uh, I will need the, the code word today is the last word of that paragraph. And it's a, um, I'll read the, the sentence. It says, or volunteering in a something, something, something. And that last word in that sentence is the code word. Put that in the subject line. Email it to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Do not use the contact form. Email it to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Include your name and your shipping address. Well, I'll pick one at random and they will win the Steripen directly from Ready Made Resources. I will also give away two, um, 
member support brigades as well today at random. So three people will win something today. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and now take care of our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one, Western Botanicals. Uh, I'll tell you what, if you need herbs of any sort, whether whole or already made into preparations, if it's legal to buy, Western Botanicals has it. Uh, they are my source for everything and anything herbal, and uh, I trust them 100% to provide the highest quality, organically grown or wildcrafted herbs available. I suggest you do the same. Again, Western Botanicals, you'll find their banner on our website. Next up today, Save Castle Royal, one of our oldest sponsors, I think probably the original first sponsor of the show ever had. Um, they also have a really awesome discount program, $29 uh, one time. And for the rest of your life, you get discounts on everything they sell. But if you're part of the member support brigade, of course, you get that at absolutely no cost. And what does Safe Castle offer? Everything you can think of for your prepping needs. From stuff for home defense, for long-term food storage, food that's already prepared for long food, uh, long-term food storage, and everything else you can imagine. And while you're there, check out their sister site, Safe Castle LLC, and they build some of the best hardened shelters in the industry. Again, Safe Castle is probably, I think if I'm right, the first original sponsor we had. Been with us for over uh, two years now, almost three years now and uh, really a long-term supporter of the show so you know what folks when you need to buy something for your next prepping needs consider giving them some of that support back all right with that ready to go ahead take that first call and uh, here we go with it hi jack i've been listening uh for well over a year to your podcast and an msb member uh, my question is my wife and i are in escrow on a piece of land in arizona it's an old mining claim um It's never been loved on, so one of the first orders of business is to drill for well uh, water while we're in escrow to make sure the land is um, suitable for building a house on it. The big question that I have is how much water is enough water, If we find, assuming we find water when we drill. Long term, we expect to build maybe at least two homes Uh, maybe more, but right now two homes is enough, and do some gardening and maybe even plant a small orchard. The property is in a semi-arid area. It's about 6,200 feet of elevation. Any advice you could give us would be great. Thanks for your um, podcast. Love to listen to it all the time, and um, have a great day. Of course, the question, how much water uh, do you need for the well to produce, is highly subjective. But let's start out with some mean averages and some basic conservation numbers to get an idea. Um, the average use, uh, according to drinktap.org, which is part of the American Water Works Association, probably a pretty good source for this, is about 69.3 gallons. So let's call it 70 gallons a day per capita. That's per person. Um, and if we look at that and we break that out across the average American use, the average household, Uh, some use more than others, but the average household in America today uses about 127,400 gallons a year. So if we wanted to say that you needed a well that would produce the national average for two homes, it would be about 250,000, 260,000 gallons of water a year. That's an awful lot. But let's look at just, you know, you're going to build houses, so that means you're putting all brand new stuff in. So you have the ability to put in the most efficient uh, things like shower heads, washing machines, toilets, dishwashers, uh, and things like that. And if you do that, the average person, just by using more efficient 
appliances can cut that 69.3 down to about 45. So now we look at that and say, well, now we're looking in the neighborhood of what, about 80,000 gallons per, per household. So that would be using mean averages. And that means that you're just going to use the water the way every other American does with more efficient stuff. Now, do you need that much? Well, it depends on what you're using now. And keeping an eye on your current water use will tell you what you use. And, and that would be very helpful as well. Just go back and look at your water bills over the past year and see how much water you're currently using. When you go into irrigation, you're at a different level there, and you're, sounds like you're in a pretty dry area, which Arizona, you know, I don't really know of any place in Arizona that's not really kind of dry. So irrigation is something you're going to have to figure out based on how much you're going to plant. So your best thing is to kind of use these as just basic numbers in your head, and then look to the person you're going to get to uh, come in and do the well assessment. And ask him, what do wells in the area generally produce and what problems does this cause or not cause for people? And then here's another option that a lot of people find uh, to get them by in your situation. In many instances, even in the desert, a water table rises and falls throughout the year. And a well will produce very well for a portion of the year, and then its production will decline at a different time of the year. So by going in and, let's say, putting in 10,000 or 20,000 gallons of reserve tanks and then using the well to fill those tanks will get you through dry parts of the year. I don't know if that's going to work in Arizona, but I've seen it work in quite a few places in mountainous areas where you get a lot of rain one portion of the year and you don't get as much rain another portion of the year. So that is uh, another thing you can look at. The big thing is to find out what the well can produce in the first place and then look at conservation methods and see if it's going to work. The other thing is when you mention two homes, well, now everything changes. If one is for you, then you control that. If you're going to sell one, then the water availability becomes part of the marketability of the home. So if you're selling it off instead of providing it for a... a, a, uh, a Let's say you're going in on this with somebody else that knows what they're in for or another family member or something like that, or you're simply building a guest home. That's very different than building a house that you're going to sell off to an independent third party. But overall, when it comes to your own use, if you're building there for yourself, look at conservation, especially with irrigation. Obviously, at least one of these homes is for you based on the way you phrase the question. With new techniques, actually old techniques we're rediscovering like hugel culture, which is simply digging a deep pit, and filling it with logs and rotted wood and covering it over and building a raised bed over that and planting your trees or your, your vegetable gardens over those areas, even in very dry climates, you can almost eliminate the need for irrigation or maybe only provide some drip irrigation during the hottest part of the day to help keep the ground cool in that hot Arizona sun. So there you go. It's the best I can do with that one. Great question. Hopefully I've helped you and other people think about this situation. Let's go ahead and take the next call. Hi, Jack. This is Ben. I was just listening to uh, episode 583 in about the guns, and you were mentioning a four-gun battery. And being as I'm looking at making one of my first gun purchases, if you could uh, maybe go into depth about that a little more uh, sometime for a more novice gun new gun owner. Thanks. Bye. Well, that's a pretty easy one, and it's one I've talked about a lot in the past, and it's probably why I just referenced it in that show without going into it. But a four-gun battery is really kind of 
an unofficial thing. I don't know that there's anybody that's ever officially said that that's what this is, but it's something that's talked about a lot in the prepper world, and it's talked about a lot in the sporting world and self-defense worlds as well. And it involves a concept that each type of weapon is kind of purpose-built and has certain things that it does well. And there's only a certain number of things that a man or a woman ever needs weapons to do for them, from self-defense to gathering meat for the pot. And if we look at that, there's there's four frames, let's call it, uh, of rifle and, and, and handgun that would work together to do all of those things. With self-defense, one of the things we need from self-defense is the ability to carry a weapon on our person when it's not reasonable uh, to be carrying a rifle or a shotgun because a rifle or a shotgun is a better tool for self-defense than any handgun ever will be, but I can't walk down my uh, street when I'm taking a walk with the dog with a rifle slung over my back without drawing an awful lot of attention and possibly going to incarceration. So in that instance, I would use concealed carry and carry a handgun. There's also just simply places where even if I could carry a rifle, it's just not convenient. So the handgun makes up the self-defense role when I am not able to carry a rifle or a shotgun, or doing so is not convenient. The rifle and shotgun are also tools for self-defense, but then they branch, so we have those for self-defense, however we may see those being used, kept up under the bed, or in a rack, or in a safe somewhere, but available and accessible for home defense situations. Whether it's go get it because there's a threat, or we're at a heightened alert state, where they're readily accessible or even on our person in a total shit at the fan scenario, if we're going through a place where there's riots going on, if I'm out in my backyard, there will be a rifle on my back or a shotgun slung on my back, one or the other. So both of those weapons can fulfill that role. They do it differently. Shotguns are great urban defensive weapons. Uh, using buckshot, they're, they're a short range and very effective defensive weapon. Switching the slugs, they have a little bit more range, but let's face it, a shotgun's not a long-range sniping tool. Rifles fill that short-range role very well. They also have the ability to reach out further. So a shotgun and a centerfire rifle now make up additional concepts for that self-defensive role. But most people don't need both for self-defense. One or the other would be fine, because let's face it, folks, self-defense does not usually involve 200-yard shots that that rifle can make. So a shotgun for home defense with that handgun, for most scenarios in most environments, would pretty well solve this issue. The rancher in Wyoming that might actually be shot at by a poacher may need a long-range weapon to return fire. The suburbanite, let's let's face it, we're buying it because we want it. So where does that center fire rifle come in? Medium and large game. If we're ever in a situation where we need to take deer, elk, bear, and game of that size, a good quality center fire rifle, generally 25, 25 caliber or higher, most popular being 30 caliber, 308, 30.06, but something in that small mid-bore range in center fire. So this is above our 223s, our 22 250s. So again, we're looking at 257 Roberts, 2506, 243 maybe on the bottom end. Uh, a lot of guys like the 280, winch, uh, 280 uh, 270, uh, 3006, 30 caliber, 27, 30 caliber mid-bore. Probably the best all-around group of bores. And then even some people will step up into the 35 Remington uh, with a larger bore, but a, a shorter range round, more of a woods environment. But whatever you want, at least one rifle 
that kind of fits in that role. You know, some people will step into the Magnums, 300 Winchester Magnum as their center fire, or a 338 Magnum, or a 338.06, or a 35 Whalen. It's up to you, but something in that kind of space. And then lastly, we realize that The shotgun can only do so much for us in gathering small game. It's noisy, it's loud, it's overkill for some environments, and the ammunition is heavy. So we need another way to be able to take small game other than a shotgun in different scenarios where we want to be quieter, less damaging on meat maybe, or even though we're using something that seems less powerful, have greater range. Because I can shoot a squirrel at 75 yards with a .22, and I'm not pulling that off using a shotgun with six shot. And, of course, we also realize that if I want to be efficient with my rifle, I need to practice a lot. And going through 50 rounds every weekend of 30.06 is expensive. It's heavy recoil, so it's hard on my body. So because it's loud, it requires me to go to a place that's uh, maybe a little further out to be able to practice. And because it's expensive, I'll practice less. So that 22 rimfire becomes the rifle that I train with because it has inexpensive ammunition and I can shoot it in a lot of places where I can get away with it. I don't mean legally get away with it. I mean I can do it without it. Nobody's going to get upset. It's not that loud. It's not that noisy. People understand what it is. A reasonable backstop is a reasonable backstop for everybody with it. So just by getting a little bit to the outskirts of town and finding a dirt bank, I can go out there and practice. So that .22 becomes my training weapon and my small game weapon and a great all-around tool uh, for everything from training to gathering small game. With those four guns, a .22 rimfire, a centerfire rifle, a good quality handgun, 9mm, 40 Smith, .357, whatever it is you want, and a shotgun, I have everything I actually could ever come up with that I need a gun for taken care of. So that's my base. And then if I want to specialize, if I'm a guy that goes to Alaska every year, and I hunt brown bear and moose, and my center fire rifle that I keep for my little homestead in Pennsylvania is a 270 Winchester, everything I'll ever need in Pennsylvania. But going up into the, the, the big hills in, in, uh, in, in Alaska and possibly having something want to eat me like a grizzly bear, I might want to step up and I might want to buy a 338 Winchester or a 375 H&H Magnum or something like that. So now I'm special building off of that. Uh, then let's say maybe I decide I want something, a centerfire rifle, more purpose-built for self-defense. Well, now I might go get an AR-15 platform with a 223. Or I want to do varmint hunting. I might go out and buy a .22 Hornet or a .223 bolt-action rifle. And purpose-built specialty weapons will spring off of that four-gun battery. But in reality, I can do everything I need to do with those four guns. So that's why it's so prop. That's why it's so popular, and that's what it's really kind of all about. Great question. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is uh, Lost Airplane. Jeff from St. Louis. Christy and I went down and played around in the preps uh, in the, the alternatives uh, pantry yesterday, and we were surprised at, number one, the amount of food we have managed to amass in the short period of time that we've been prepping actively. And we were doing some rotating because I knew I'd been a little bit remiss on ro rotating lately. I thought I was pretty much on top of things, but there were stuff down there that I haven't looked at or moved since um, 2009. And it's starting to get, show its age, and some of it was actually getting close to being out of date. So I just wanted to call in and remind everybody, don't forget about your preps. It's easy to lose track of the fact that you need to rotate from downstairs to upstairs. One good thing was, looking at all our prep stuff, it was kind of like looking in a mirror at the pantry upstairs. Everything we had in storage was stuff we already eat 
anyway, so it's going to be rotated upstairs, and we did a lot yesterday, so we really feel good about that. And um, the other thing is, you did an interview with David Crawford, and I can't listen to that show yet because I'm almost finished with the book. I downloaded it. I got a Kindle app on my Android phone, and I downloaded it from Amazon, and I'm just about finished reading and I'm afraid if I listen to the show, it'll give something away about the ending of the book, so... Um, I'll be listening to that episode real soon here. I should probably be able to finish the book today. Uh, good job on the book by him, and uh, I sort of was looking forward to an audio version by you. Maybe that'll come down the pike sometime later. Take care. See you. Bye. <laughs> okay. Uh, on the David Crawford thing, if anybody else is in this boat, this is an older call, so he's probably done by now and listen to it. There's no spoilers in the David Crawford interview. There's a little bit of information that's kind of about the, the storyline itself and, and how it starts out. But we don't give away any information, so don't be afraid uh, to listen to David's interview if you haven't read Lights Out yet. Um, you can listen to the interview and then read the book, or read the book and listen to the interview. And either way, uh, you're not going to have anything spoiled on you. Um, on the, the food rotation, great insight, and I want to kind of add to it for everybody listening how to avoid getting into the scenario you guys were in. The problem is when you come home from the grocery store. Generally, if you're like me, you're not really happy. It's not really a place you like to go. It's a pain in the ass. you got to go in there and stand in a line and wait and deal with rude people that park their cart sideways in the aisle and block the whole damn thing and they, they wedge their fat butt between their cart and the other side of it and you got to say excuse me four times before they even acknowledge that you're trying to get around them and there's little kids running around screaming and yelling. I mean, it's not fun. And for whatever reason you have, it's probably not. I don't think anybody that listens to this show wakes up and says, Yay, today's grocery day. You know, that's when you're a little kid and you're going to get some candy when you go to the grocery store because you're going to be a pain in the butt. Uh, and you know you're going to get some candy by the time it's over with. Once you're an adult and you have to pay the bills, not really a lot that you want to do. So what does that have to do with food rotation? Well, when you get home, you're like, I just want to put this crap in the pantry and put it away and be done with it. And that is a problem. Because what happens is even when you're doing what this caller's doing, and you're doing a great job of storing what you eat and eat what you store, your long-term storage is probably somewhere different than where your storage is for the food you use every day. So what happens is you mean to take it downstairs or upstairs or in the closet or wherever, and you mean to take the stuff that's in the front and then take your new stuff and put it in the back and bring the front stuff to the pantry that's the daily use pantry, but you don't do it. So do you know how you make sure it gets done every time? When you make your list for the grocery store, you then take your list before you go to the grocery store, and you go down into your deep pantry, and you fill up the bag, you get those cloth bags that you can that they use over and over, buy those for a dollar a piece, they're worth their weight in gold as far as I'm concerned. Take the bags you're going to take to the grocery store downstairs, buy every, get everything you can from your own storage. Take it upstairs, put it in your, your daily use area. And then you might find there's certain things you need to add to your list or you can take off your list. So you got your opportunity to buy a thing going. Now when you go to the grocery store and you come home, even though you don't feel like it, you're going to take it downstairs or upstairs or wherever and backfill because there's no room for it in the daily use area. So if you do that first when you're in the right frame of mind and right mood, when you get home, you're only doing one half of the task then. You're just putting it away. So you take it straight away to the place. Another thing you can do to make this easier is, and my wife and I do this anyway, bag your own groceries. Just tell the checker, I got it. 
I have a certain way I want to do it. Send the little kid to another, you know, go help somebody else. I want to do this. If they don't like it, tell them to shut up and let you do it in a nice way. And they always will. Customers always right. This will allow you, one, to not put one item in one bag, which they do all the time. It drives me nuts because they're convinced that, you know, this jar of soap can't go in with my meat. Which I, you know, it's sealed. It's fine. Throw it in there. I don't care what they told you at bag school. Um, and they'll let you do it if you're the one doing it. But the bigger thing is you can in your head be like downstairs, 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 daily use area, downstairs, daily use area. And when you come home, there's very little up and up and down or back and forth. Certain bags you know go to the storage facility. Certain bags go to your, you know, your kitchen daily use area. That's just a great way to do it, and uh, we're actually looking forward once we move to be able to be more efficient with that. We've kind of got food storage spread out between two locations right now, which is nice if we had to leave, but it's going to be much easier when our bug-out location and our home are the same place. Great call, and again, if you want to read Lights Out or you haven't read Lights Out yet, the interview is not a spoiler uh, with David. Uh, let's go ahead and take the next call. Hi, Jack. This is Ben. Uh, still getting through the new listeners, still getting through the, some of the older shows. Uh, big fan. Thanks for what you do. I have a question about interstate concealed carry. Uh, I'm currently, uh, considering a job, uh, job change that will require me to, uh, cover several states and am looking into get my concealed carry. And I know that you have mentioned in the past that you carry in every state that that it's legal. If you can give me some information about uh, how one state would carry over to another or whether there's a blanket certification that you can get. Great. Thanks, Jack. Bye. This is one of those ones to protect my own ass I will give no definitive answer to. As in, you know, you can go to these states and not these states because laws change and you're responsible for verifying these things for yourself. What I can tell you is I think it's 36, it may be more, uh, states are what are called reciprocity states. And um, you need to always check with the state you're going to uh, and get an official answer, not just some blogger that says it's a reciprocity state. It may mean a, a quick call to the, uh, the, uh, the attorney general's office at that state and say, I'm a concealed carrier from Texas. Uh, next month, I'm going to be traveling in Arkansas. I need to verify that my concealed carry permit from Texas is acceptable for carry in Arkansas. And you'll get an answer very, very quickly. And that answer, when you get that answer, write down the date, the time you made the call, the person's name you got the answer from, just in case there's any confusion in the future. Uh, it should never be a problem, but we always cover every base if we're smart. So that's the basic answer. Now, There are some unique things, and this is why I can't give you an overall answer. Let's talk about two states that sort of have reciprocity. Uh, Florida and Vermont. It would be a perfect example of kind of a hairy situation. If you travel to Vermont from Florida, and you're, you have a Florida concealed carry permit, and you're a non-resident of Vermont, with that permit, Vermont says, fine, you can carry If you want to carry in Vermont, my understanding is if you're a resident of Vermont, you don't need a permit. Vermont says, we have a right to keep and bear arms. Duh, carry away. As long as you are in legal possession of the weapon and you use it legally and responsibly, carry your butt off. So this creates a problem. Why? Let's say a Vermont resident's traveling to Florida. 
Florida has no problem recognizing a concealed carry permit from Vermont. The problem is concealed carry permit from Vermont does not exist. So the person who can legally carry in Vermont cannot legally carry in Florida. And I believe most of the other reciprocity states have the same issue. You can't come to Texas, say I'm from Vermont, and we're allowed to carry, so I'm allowed to carry here. Texas would say you're carrying illegally as well. You have to have a permit. So what's the way around this? Well, it's the same way that I saw my issue with removing the Arkansas. And as soon as I'm not a state resident of Texas anymore, my state Texas uh, permit is no longer valid. And Arkansas would make me wait six months to get a permit in Arkansas after achieving residency. That's one of the requirements for an Arkansas concealed carry permit. But Arkansas is concealed carry with Florida. How does that help me? Florida will issue a non-resident a concealed carry permit. I believe Utah will as well. I think Florida has a few more states that recognize theirs. You'll need to check this for yourself. So by getting a non-resident Florida permit, I solve my issue. I think it helps a lot of people, um, especially if the state you reside in recognizes the Florida permit. Uh, it may be the best way overall to go. My understanding, though, I've never even tried it, is there is some things like if you have a concealed carry permit for Texas, you go to buy a gun in Texas, you don't fill out the form, the, the yellow form. You hand them your CC, you, you can still carry uh, permit, and then that's it. I don't think I can use my Florida permit to do that, so I've just filled out the form with any guns I've bought. Um, but that's one way around the situation. As far as the states you'll be traveling to, it's very simple. You find out the re regulations and requirements for getting a concealed carry permit in your state, and you look at the non-resident options like Utah and uh, Florida as well. And then you contact all the states you'll be traveling to. And you get direct response from their uh, AG's office. And you ask them, is my permit from valid in your state while I am visiting your state? And they tell you yes or no. And if they tell you no, then legally you do not carry in that state. And if you carry and you get caught, you can have legal problems that could involve a felony and end up in jail. There was a guy in uh, New Jersey, fortunately his, his sentence was commuted by the governor uh, because he was not allowed to present a defense that he was moving. Uh, but he had two unloaded pistols locked up in a case in his trunk. And apparently, unless you're doing very certain things, you can't even do that in the state of New Jersey. You will go to jail as a felon for carrying a gun locked in a container, unloaded in the trunk of your car. This is why I do not give definitive answers. No one is going to say, well, Jack said, and now I'm in prison. You're going to have to check with the states individually. Uh, but that's my overall thoughts on it. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. I've been listening to the Herbal Actions Uh, well, the first three so far. This is Chris from Indiana. Uh, have you ever stopped to think about this one? When you were little and you were standing there cooking and your grandma was there teaching you uh, and she sat there and told you, it's because I put love in it. Now, that love was the herbs and the spices and I do believe that uh, nowadays... The recipes that they had, the good family recipes, those were, some of those were written down, but a lot of them in my family have been lost to time. Uh, I do believe that that's why uh, families and things like that uh, have gone more the way of the pill and going to the knife. Uh, just a thought. Tell me what you think. All right. Have a nice day. 
Actually, I, I think there may be a lot to that. I don't know if the love itself, your grandma meant it was the herbs and, and spices, but it may have been in certain ways. If we look at when someone's cooking from home and they're cooking from a kitchen garden and they're using that basil or oregano or dill or what have you, it's the freshest thing you can get. And the, the taste cannot be compared. Even when that, that grandmother wrote down the recipe and put pinch of dill Uh, uh, you know, two tablespoons of chopped basil. If, if the if the, the the daughter or daughter-in-law that's following grandma's recipe goes to the spice rack at the store and gets it dried and dehydrated, it's not the same, and it's not going to be the same. But the whole concept of cooking in our own homes, and I don't mean cooking is not microwaving something in a box. That's not cooking. Cooking is not heating up a hot dog. Cooking is actually taking raw food and raw ingredients and combining it and cooking it. And to me, that is a, a big part of the, the love, as Grandma would have said, is the fact that you created it. You know, when you when your little kid is like in kindergarten or first grade and they draw this, 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 this uh, you know, Father's Day or Mother's Day card for you, and it's just really terrible artwork. I mean, get out of the lines and sideways and all. When they bring that to you, There's nothing more beautiful in the world because they made it for you. And when we cook for our families, we're doing the same thing. And I think there's a lot to health there beyond the food itself. First, if you're eating good quality food that's been cooked at home, then you're not eating McDonald's and Burger King and all the other crap. And you're not eating GMO corn. So it's, it's, it's much what you're not eating as what you are eating. In fact, it may be more important what you're not eating. I mean, that may be the most important part of it all. It also keeps the family together. If you if you cook, then the family sits down, and the family discusses things, and they talk about things. And things that would normally fester come out in the open, and they get solved. I know that whenever we have a big issue with my family, either we're cooking dinner and sitting down, or we're going out to eat, and we're going to sit down around a table, and we're going to talk about it. And that gets us through a lot of things that otherwise I think we wouldn't get through. So I think there's a lot going on with what you had to say. And does it necessarily mean you're going to be more likely to end up taking medication or having surgery? I think sooner or later it does. I think if your entire life you're bombarding your body with, with, with food that's not good for you, you're a hell of a lot more likely at some point in your life to have a surgeon cracking your sternum open and replacing valves or, or scraping valves around your heart. So... Absolutely. I think you're a lot more likely to be under stress and have things like high blood pressure do that damage. Not just cholesterol, not just the toxins that we ingest, but the stress effect as well. So yeah, and I think one of the things we really need to get back to is when you find a recipe you love, you write it down and you hand it down. The secret recipe crap, that needs to go the way of the dodo. Share your best recipes with anyone that will listen. And let them go out there and multiply and be fruitful. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, this is Tom from Georgia. I'm looking at land, and a lot of parcels I'm finding are completely wooded. Some have houses and some don't. Is there anything general that can be said about what's involved in the southeast when clearing land? In other words, the 5 by 5 wooded acres want to clear three of them, and the forest is typical mixed hardwoods and pine with the trees being mature but not necessarily huge. Can I get it cleared for free or even make money on the deal? And then what do I do afterwards when I have three acres of stumps? If you could talk about this, I'd appreciate it. Thanks. 
Well, you may be able to make some money. You may or may not, depending on the trees, the mix, the size, the maturity, the ease of extraction for whoever's going to come in and do it, and how much of it you actually want to clear and what type of access they're going to have to do it. Um, you could contact local timber companies, come out to give you a bid, and mark trees, tell you what they would take out. I'll give you an overall assessment, an overall ballpark bid, and if you want to move forward from there, uh, then they'll go in, like I said, and mark trees and look at routes in and out and things like that, and they'll tell you what they're going to do. For clearing land, if you want to be stump-free, the way that's generally done with most trees is by using a bulldozer and pushing the trees over. And when you push a full tree over, uh, rather than just cut it down, it generally takes the root system with it to a large degree. That said, you're going to buy five wooded acres. I would seriously consider not, not just wipe straight, clear-cutting, and clearing out three acres of land. That's a lot of land. You need to look at what you're going to use this land for and you will find that if you would take the approach of clearing multiple quarter acre sections of the land that growing things in those surrounded by woodlands, yes there's going to be some shaded areas but the protection afforded by the surrounding woodlands and the predator habitat and everything else, it's going to be much more pleasing, much more appealing to the eye. It's better for the environment. And it's something you can do in stages. There's going to be nothing worse than going out wiping out three acres and having a big dirt pile, stripping your, your topsoil. If you don't get cover crops in fast enough, all your topsoil is going to wash away. By going in and taking multiple, like you need enough of a clearing to build your home, Maybe you want to put a dam in. So when you build a dam, you just bulldoze the trees. Maybe you sell some of the good timber trees, uh, but you build a dam. Now you take the wood aside. Maybe you can use that for some hugel culture, some of it. Maybe you can use some of it for building materials. But I would really encourage you, if you do find yourself in a scenario with um, five acres uh, of wooded land, which, by the way, is roughly what I have, to do this in stages and to leave more than two acres of it wooded. Even if you thin it heavily and go in and plant understory crops and do more of a farm forestry, even if you thin it heavily so you can go in and plant, you know, kind of fruit trees and nut trees in your forest, I still think you'll have an easier to maintain environment, a more environmentally friendly environment, and long term a more productive environment. Just my thoughts there. But yeah, if you want to just sell off your timber, there'll be plenty of people in your local area that'll come out and give you a bid on that. Stumps, again, without pushing the trees over, which in some timber extraction they're not going to want to do, uh, you're going to have to hire a machine to come in and take those out, and that could be quite expensive. You'd probably be close to break even if you have good quality timber by the time you were done with both segments of that. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hello, Jack. This is uh, John in Indiana. Uh, first off, I just want to tell you I really appreciate your show, and I um, appreciate the kind of the optimistic uh, spin you put on things. I know there's a lot of uh, uh, not so great news out there in the world, but uh, I love your uh, can-do attitude, and it's uh, encouraging to, to hear you um, uh, be that way. Uh, my question has to do with uh, uh, young sapling type trees that we have uh, planted in our yard and uh, trying to keep uh, the deer from uh, browsing. Uh, want to know what the most effective means might be for trying to repel them. So uh, if you could uh, maybe comment on that, uh, I would really appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. 
Well, this just makes me think of a quote from a forum I was recently reading uh, on, on Paul's uh, forum, permies.com, where a guy was talking about doing some work and, and keeping deer out. And he said, for those that do not know what a deer is, a deer is a large four-legged rodent that can destroy a season's worth of work in about 15 minutes if given half a chance. And uh, there is something to be said for that. I don't hate deer. In fact, deer are one of the things in the world that I truly love, including eating them and hunting them. So um, eliminating a few of them with either arrow or bullet is one step in the right direction. The foolproof method of protecting your crops from deer, and there's only one that I know of that's absolutely foolproof, is a deer-hating dog that lives outside. If you have that, and dogs that, that would be good for dual purpose, like protecting your livestock and your crops, would be things like uh, Great Pyrenees. It's probably the best dog in the world for that. A Great Pyrenees will literally give its life to defend a chicken. Uh, and they don't really like deer very much either. And uh, that would be the, the foolproof method. So if you have a fenced-in area and the deer are getting over the fence and the dog will be contained, or you have a dog that can live outside and be happy outside, and is you know you live in an area where he's not going to run away and he's well trained, he's a good homestead dog. That would be you know the most optimum method. Obviously, you don't have that because you have a problem. So it may be that that's not an option for you. But if it is, I would explore it. With saplings, though, one thing you definitely can do is get really high chicken wire, maybe a couple of it wired together, and go up about six feet with it, and just make a circle uh, about a foot out around your tree. And actually then the deer become your friend, because as, as, as the tree grows through the chicken wire, those lower branches, they'll come nibble on that, but it really won't hurt the tree, and it'll all actually kind of help shape the tree uh, and do some of your pruning for you. So that's one thing you can do. And generally speaking, once you get the primary vegetation on your trees up over about six feet, you don't have a lot of problem with deer browse. They don't really like to eat trees. What they like to eat is that new growth. So those young saplings with those tender young shoots, that's like deer candy. So fencing in the trees individually is one thing you can do. Um, I know people who have had success by going to a barber and getting a lot of human hair and sprinkling human hair around trees. But that's generally people that live in areas where um, it's really still pretty wild, and human smell is a big deer deterrent. When they become suburbanite deer and they just become acclimated to living in the suburbs, there's human smell everywhere. That doesn't tend to work as well anymore. Um, predator urine, like uh, like coyote urine, really doesn't seem to work. Uh, I've never found that to be the case. In fact, you know, fox urine is often used as a cover scent by hunters, so um, I, I don't think that's very effective. All of the deer repellents that I've seen never seem to be very effective. It comes down to either an animal that will keep them at bay or some sort of physical barrier. So either fencing in the individual trees, putting in a deer fence, uh, or something to that effect is about the only thing you can do. Now, one thing about deer is they're not really smart. So if you had something like a four-foot chain-link fence, mature deer will look at that fence and go, <laughs> okay, that's, that's cute, but I'm just going to bounce over that, eat your tree, and leave. But if you were to, during the time of the year you need to protect your trees, uh, at a few of your fence posts, tie wrap uh, a, ba a bamboo uh, pole or some sort of pole, and go up about another two feet and make the fence look six feet tall with a couple strands of just string. Now, if they jumped into that string, they would just go right through it and break those cheap poles. 
But when they see that, that's a visual barrier they won't break. So it may be low cost. If there's any way that you can create a visual barrier using string or anything else inexpensive, that generally will keep them out as well. They have this fear of something that they don't understand. But like nine-line fences and things like that where there's space in them, uh, where they can slide underneath. I've seen deer uh, slide through spots. You look at the deer and with bucks with racks and go, how the hell did that deer slip through that fence? So if they can slip through... Uh, the visual barrier is not really effective. If they can't slip through, if they have to leap over and they see the visual barrier, it's generally very effective. So those are the best things I can tell you. If anybody knows of a deer repellent product that actually works, especially with suburban deer, let me know. Again, I know if you're out in an area where the deer still are afraid of humans uh, as far as their scent, human hair works. But um, once they get in, you know, into that suburban environment where they're literally walking between houses and uh, they just kind of stay away from people, but they're not really afraid anymore and they've become adapted, I, I don't know of anything that works. So if you do, let me know. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. My name is Mike. I, I kind of have a two questions for you. The first one is uh, I, I've only been listening for about a month, so I'm trying to decide which one to do first, whether I should build my bug-out bag first or if I should start storing food. I've, I've kind of done both. Uh, I've got some essentials in my bug-out bag, and I've got some uh, some food, some rice, some beans to start off with. The second thing is um, I'm a police officer, and I'm kind of struggling with that right now, being a libertarian, and things have changed in my life recently. But I've been doing it for 10 years, so I have some retirement built up. Uh, I'm thinking about starting a new job, and I was thinking about pulling that retirement even with my penalties and paying off my, my credit cards. The only thing I owe, I owe about $6,000 on it, but I'm the only one in my family with an income. And pulling that retirement out and, pulling and paying that would save me about $200 a month, and I was thinking I could then put that uh, back into savings or invest it into precious metals or even uh, the stock market so um, or an IRA or something like that. But I just thought I'd maybe get your uh, thoughts on it. Yeah, I appreciate it, and uh, keep up the good work, Jack. Thanks. Well, uh, let's start with the easy question, the bug-out bag versus storing food. Sort of kind of the bug-out bag, take, bag takes priority in the beginning uh, because what is the first thing we have to do if we're going to store a year's worth of food? Well, we have to store a day's worth, and then we have to store two days' worth, and then we have to store three. Well, when we have three days' worth of stored food, we can put that into our bug-out bag, and we have our 72 hours' worth of food. And then most of the other things that can go into a bug-out bag do not require a trip to the store. We need a couple changes of clothing, so we take some of our old, older clothing that we don't wear all the time but is suitable and, and, and uh, useful is clothing still serviceable we put that in there maybe we have a blanket we start we'll be able to documentation package and that only costs us the printer ink uh, so a lot of the stuff that goes in a bug out bag is going to be more about finding it and putting it in there than buying it so we get that done first, and then the things that we use to, to, to kind of increase the utility of our bug out bag, maybe some camping gear type of items, uh, you know, a hatchet or a machete or something like that, we slowly add to it, and we start building our, our food storage. And those are two kind of simultaneous, and they're very good first steps. And for all the stuff we talk about, storing food, having a way to, pres to, 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 to uh, purify your water, and having reserved water, and having a plan to get out and stuff to take with you if you go, that's your foundation. That's where it starts. So those two are as simultaneous as you can make it. But initially, you can start with the, bu the bug out bag, and you can get that done in a week. Um, and maybe it's not the perfect bug out bag, but it'll do the job. And we don't always have to have all this fancy, expensive, Gucci-style bug-out gear 
to have a good serviceable bug out bag. You know, maybe we're going out and buying some some energy bars uh, to add to the the food storage that's there, and maybe we're buying some bug repellent, some things like that. But fifty bucks. And you should have a serviceable bug out bag. So if you even have a family of four, two hundred bucks, you should have a serviceable bug out bag for every member of the family. And you can make things better after that, but that's enough. On your question, uh, you know it's a hard one because you have to make your own decision. First, let me say um, I would never tell anybody stay in a job they hate. If you don't want your job anymore, if you want to do something else, if you feel called to do something else, make it happen. Life you get one trip through life, and being a police officer is a hard job, and it's often a thankless job. That said, I don't think being a libertarian is in conflict with being a police officer. I'd like more of you guys to be libertarians. Um, every officer I can see that would say I'm a libertarian and go to a place like Oath Keepers and say my oath means what it says, not what they tell me it says. And I'm going to follow my oath, and I'm going to be a good law enforcement officer, and I'm going to be here to help people. And when somebody's really a legitimate criminal, I'm going to do everything I can to put them away. But I'm also going to see that my first job is to protect, not to incarcerate. I want as many guys like you out there as possible. And I want you spreading that message among your ranks, as, as ill-received as it may be by some, for as long as possible, to get as many people like you thinking your way as possible as, as we can possibly do. So don't just turn your back on law enforcement because of a political conflict. If it is what you believe you need to do, then then you got to do it. On the financial aspects, do I pay off my credit cards with early retirement? Um, you're going to have to look more in line with the total cost. In other words, if you don't take your early retirement now, I don't know how this works. If you can leave it and you have a partial retirement, and by leaving it for the future, it's worth more, then maybe you, you, you just, it's only $6,000, dude. And I know you're paying $200 minimum on it right now, and that seems like forever to pay it off. But if you paid $500 a month, um, that's $3,000 for six, that's a year. $500 a month is a year to pay this off. So maybe you stay put with your current job for another year, and you live a little bit more lean, And you find an extra 300 bucks, and you get it paid off. And then when you're, whatever you have of your early retirement is yours. And it's part of your career transition. But these are decisions you're going to have to make for yourself. If quitting means you take your retirement or you lose it, obviously you take it. If you find yourself in possession of enough money to pay off the credit card debt, you pay it off. Because I would never advise you, well, go borrow $6,000 on a credit card, put it in the bank. So if taking, if leaving the force means the money is coming, pay off the debt. If leaving the force means the money could come, weigh, is the money more valuable now or is it more valuable tomorrow? In this though, with the taking the retirement or not, what is the condition of your state financially and your city financially? Because you may be better served to take whatever you can get today Because your state or city may be very well bankrupt tomorrow. So you have to weigh all of those things. But please, please don't walk away from the badge just because you don't agree with everything you're asked to do. If it's in you and you love the work itself, stay and fight to make it right. We need every officer like you we can get. And I guarantee you, I had a dinner with Stuart, Stuart Rhodes last night from Oath Keepers. He would tell you the same thing. But I'll also tell you, if in your heart 
You know you need to be doing something else. I don't care what your job is or what job you want to do. Make it happen because it's the only way you're truly going to be happy. And um, we do get one trip around. So make sure you make the most out of that trip. Uh, let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Carson from Canada. I was listening to your show on planning and developing the uh, a person's suburban homestead today. And when you talked about livestock, one thing that I've been thinking of, and frankly, we'll probably get a pair once we ha are in a place where we can have animals, um, pot-bellied pigs. Uh, I know a lot of people think of them as, oh, cute little pets, but I look at them and I think of them as, hmm, nice little roasters. And I mean... That's what Vietnamese, the Vietnamese originally used them for was a food source. And most municipalities, well, most cities and towns, I imagine, would let you have them. I know up here, even though they say no pigs, they have a specific, like they have a list of animals. They include most farmyard animals. But they have a specific exemption for pot-bellied pigs because they are commonly viewed as just a pet. So there's another option for people to use as a as a backyard food source. Get a breeding pair of pot-bellied pigs and raise your own little mini porkers for roasting. I hope you have a great day. Bye. Um, yeah, I'll tell you what. A pot-bellied pig in Vietnam is considered food. A lot of things are considered food in Vietnam, but pot-bellied pig is something I wouldn't object to. I think that... Because they're small, docile creatures, and because they've taken uh, a big piece of the pet trade uh, for novelty pets in the United States, people are tending to look at them the way they look at a dog and maybe have a problem with this concept of eating them. But in the end, they're a pig. And uh, whether it's a great big uh, uh, domestic pig or a potbelly pig, in the end, um, if, if you slaughter it and butcher it, it's all pork. The general consensus that I've found online about potbelly pigs is they're a lot fattier of a pig uh, than a many domestic swine. But I think that has a lot to do with how they're fed. I really do. Um, feeding them heavily on acorns for a few months right before you were to slaughter them would probably make that fat um, very delectable, I guess is the way. There is... Um, There is a type of hog grown in Spain uh, that is the most expensive uh, ham you can possibly buy. I may butcher the way this is pronounced, but I believe it's Iberico de Belata. And that is a black-hoofed swine. That's the Iberico. And the de Belata means fattened on acorns. And how expensive is this ham? Well... If you wanted to buy one, about a 15 to 16 pound ham, it's going to run you in the neighborhood of $1,200 to $1,300. So a lot of it's not going to be consumed uh, at the Spirico household. But it is an ult you know, the ultimate delicacy in Spain where these things are raised. So one wonders what happens if you raise potbelly swine on acorns and uh, slaughter them at a nice healthy weight somewhere between 75 and 125 pounds. Uh, for the small homestead, it's a lot less meat to deal with at any one time. I will tell you this. They do tend to have a hell of a personality. And that means they're really easy to get attached to personally, or spouses get attached, definitely kids get attached. 
Uh, Carson's idea of having a breeding pair and raising up uh, your piglets each year and kind of having that bifurcation, I think, might be the easier way to go and a much more sustainable way to go. Um, I don't know what it's like to keep two potbelly uh, pigs together, a male and a female. I don't know if they need to be separated at certain times or if they can just be together all the time. It's something I've never really thought of. Um, they also going to produce a lot of manure, and that's not a bad thing. That's a great composting additive. It's a hot type of compost. They'll eat anything you feed them, uh, so they can they can take care of a lot of your waste for you. Um, they're pretty well behaved little critters, so not a bad idea. And um, I don't know, one of them wrapped in banana leaves and buried in a pit for a day seems like it might be pretty dead gone good. Um, I haven't heard a lot about it. I did find a forum thread where people were discussing it, and pretty much everybody that ate them was saying yum. So I'll put a link to that forum thread that I found, and you can take a look at other people's opinions of it. Uh, one thing I found in there that I did find disturbing is that there was a record of people going to the SPCA and adopting them and then eating them. And I do find that kind of a breach of contract. The SPCA, when they place an animal into adoption, it's, it's expected that the animal's cared for. I, I find that distasteful. But in the end, it's a pig. And I eat a lot of bacon. And I have never apologized for eating a piece of bacon. And I don't think I ever will. And I wonder what those little hams would be like if you did your own ham curing and you fattened that little guy up on some acorns for like the last three months before he went off to graduate into chops and bacon and ham. Might be pretty dadgone good. Carson, you might have, uh, you might have awoken something in me. I was never considering keeping hogs in Arkansas, but this concept, it just might work. It won't be this year, but it might be part of my future. Thanks for that. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. It's Robert from Colorado. My question is, I want to know your opinion of whole house water filters. I heard a lot of contaminants come through your skin when you're showering. I'm not sure how true that is, but I was just wondering your opinion on whole house water filters. Thanks. Bye. All I can tell you is my personal stance, and that is it ain't on my list of priorities. If you wanted one, I wouldn't have a problem with it, and I would say good for you, and if it makes you feel better, it's probably a good investment. I would say that it's certainly true that some levels of contaminants can be absorbed through the skin, but I would also tell you the primary purpose of the human skin is to keep things out, and overall it does a pretty good job of it. And when we're taking a shower or, uh, and we're, we're actually cleaning the skin with a, with a cleanser or soap, uh, we're taking more away than we're ever putting in. And if we're putting anything in, it's some of the, the, the things that might be part of that soap, a good, you know, a good, uh, moisturizing soap or something like that. Um, but I'm not going to worry about it. And I'll put the fact that there could be some contaminants that get into our skin from showering where I'll put things like, there's probably some cyanide in any grape you eat. Very, very, very small trace amounts. That doesn't mean I want to line up to eat cyanide because I know if I eat enough of it, it'll kill me dead and fast, but I'm not going to stop eating grapes. I'll put it up there with when I go out and buy those little white button mushrooms from the store and I chop them up and I saute them with some butter and onions and I put them on the side of a, of a, of a meat dish. But those little white mushrooms have a, a toxin very similar to uh, the toxin that destroying angel mushroom has, which if you eat a destroying angel mushroom, uh, you'll be visiting the angels because it'll kill you dead. 
and deader than a doornail if you eat a whole one, uh, definitely. Uh, even a little bit of one of those, they're very, very toxic mushroom. And the toxin is almost identical. But inside those little white button mushrooms that we eat, it's in such trace amounts that our body has no problem dealing with it or processing it. I'll put it in the same category that technically when I have a nice cold beer at the end of a Friday, when I'm tired and I just want to sit on my deck and have one, that the alcohol is a toxin, but my liver is more than capable if I do not imbibe in excess of dealing with that toxin. That's where I'll put all of it. I'm, I'm not going to spend my money on a whole house water filtration system. Uh, and until people start dropping over dead from taking showers, it's not going to happen. There's so many other places in my life that I can make investments with things that actually go in my body that come first. If I get everything in the world the way that I want it, and that's my last thing, and I have plenty of money and plenty of time, and it, and it's just, you know, a nice thing to have, I might consider it. That's how far out it is for me. I'm not putting anybody down that chooses that for themselves. I'm just saying it's not my priority. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hey, Jack, this is the Archbison again. I had a question about the long-term storage of meat. I did uh, had one hell of a hunting season, hunting trip this year. Got two deer and an axis, and uh, I was wanting know if there was a good way to preserve that meat for maybe a shelf life of a year or more the best way to do that I've looked on the internet and I can't seem to find any conclusive data on how long meat will store uh, I prefer to uh, dry store it somehow but uh, anything you've got will help thanks Jack Love the show. Never miss an episode. I probably can, probably should, and now that you say, say that, probably will do a whole show on nothing but the preservation of fish and game. I think that's a great topic. Let me give you some basic thoughts about it now. Uh, I don't think you're a really long-term listener to the show yet because you would already know my first answer for any red meat is going to be biltong. Biltong is sort of like a South African version of jerky, uh, but the meat is uh, is cut in much thicker amounts, and it's dried in the shade. Uh, basically, I dry my biltong in my home office. I hang it up on strings from one wall to the next. I use paper clips bent out like S-hooks. I put it into the meat, and I hang it up, and I let it dry. I did an experiment, and a whole way to make biltong I have out on YouTube for you. You can watch it. I'll put a link in today's show notes. And uh, if you've previously frozen meat, you can defrost it and make biltong with excellent results. I have never had a problem with that. I also, when I did the YouTube video, I because I had a lot of people asking me about using a dehydrator to speed up the process, I did try making some biltong using my Excalibur dehydrator. I got much better results with the meat that was just hung up. If you have an, uh, live in a place where the humidity is high, even with, even with uh, indoor air conditioning or heat, um, you can take a, a, just a simple fan and kind of let it blow across where you're, you're drying your biltong, and that'll take care of things, and you'll avoid getting mold. When you get mold on, on meat when you're trying to make biltong out of it, um, it is because it is drying too slowly. That's the only reason that that happens. It's generally not harmful either. It's generally surface mold, but I don't like it on my meat, and you probably won't either. When you make biltong, the meat is not cooked. It is safe. Don't worry about it. Try it. You'll love it. Even if you've never tried it before, you don't have any game to do, go out and find some big cheap roasts. 
Uh, that's what I did in the YouTube video. Try Biltong. Teach yourself the method. It's awesome. Jerky, another great option. That's generally best done in a low-temperature oven, a smokehouse, or a dehydrator, uh, and any of those methods of making jerky. So those are two great methods. Um, but you said a year. So if you have a deep freezer, uh, meat wrapped up in plastic and then wrapped up in butcher's paper is easily storable for a year in your deep freezer. So that's, that's one method, especially for the cuts that are the best to put on the grill and eat fresh. These are going to be your back straps from the neck all the way to the butt. That whole strap, that pork chop chunk of meat all the way down there. I can't see doing anything else with that other than getting my knife and boning it right off of the backbone in a big long strip and cutting it in nice three quarter to one inch slices, packaging it up about four to five pieces per package. That's enough for one, maybe two people if you're just doing a small amount. And that way if you need more, you just take out more packages and you don't have to worry about using it all up. You could even do it in four chops per bag is what I did the last year that I took uh, with that. So that meat, I'm not going to do anything with other than cook it on the grill generally you take those folks salt pepper and some some herbs and spices whatever you want rosemary take rosemary uh dried rosemary and fresh basil and put that in a mortar and pestle and kind of make a paste out of that rub that on your chops wrap that each one of those chops with a piece of bacon put toothpicks through it to hold the bacon on Get a little bit of olive oil and add a little bit of your leftover basil and rosemary to that olive oil. Cook that on the grill, high temperature, baste it with the olive oil as it goes. As soon as the meat is, is cooked enough, it's, you still want it pink. Most people are afraid to cook deer meat pink. You want it pink. If you cook it all the way, it tastes like liver. A little bit pink in the center, bacon's crisped up a bit, done. If you want your bacon a little more crisp, take your bacon, throw it in the microwave, for about a minute for about four pieces of bacon, or maybe a little bit less, like half cook it, or take it out to your grill, throw it straight on your grill, let it cook about halfway, take it off the grill, then wrap your meat with it, and that way your bacon won't take so long to cook, and your meat can still be a little bit rare. So those pieces, I'm eating on the grill. Tenderloins come from the inside. You cut the stomach open, you look inside, there's two long strips of meat along the backbone, right behind where all the internal organs were. Those come out, those are the filet mignon. Those sautéed in a hot cast iron skillet with butter and onions whole. And then cut up and savored. Those are eaten probably the second day after the deer is killed. I don't, if I can hang the deer somewhere in cold storage or quarter it out, I don't like to remove them till the meat has had time to get hard from being in cold storage, and those come out. And those two parts of the deer, storage my butt, they're going in my gut. Okay. Now, in addition to, to jerky and biltong from all the rest of the meat, so these could be back legs, these make great steaks, but if you want to store them, they're good for that as well. The butt roast and, and, the, and the sirloin pieces and all that. Um, some other things you can try. There's a local deer processor here. I never use them for cutting my deer up or anything like that, but I've taken whole back legs and whole front shoulders to him, and he makes hams out of them. It's fabulous. I'm going to have to learn how to do it for myself uh, once we get moved. Uh, but deer ham, I was like, I went down there to see if he could make me some sausage, and I saw that, and I said, how do they come out? And he said, I just finished one up of my own. He got me a piece of it. It was a bit salty, but it was pretty damn amazing. Uh, and those will store dry storage in a cool environment for about six months without true refrigeration. We're talking 50-ish degrees uh, and wrapped up. 
Uh, so there's another method. If you have sausage made, you can experiment with doing your own dry sausage. That would be another method that would need to be kept cool, but not necessarily refrigerated. Don't underestimate the value of learning to can meat and canning venison. Uh, you take a lot of your, your lower leg, your shank, your pieces like that, you get as much tallow and fat out as you can, stack it into your pint jars, do a good canning session with a pressure canner, and then when you're going to take that out, you've got all this juice that makes this great gravy base and all, you chop up a couple potatoes, maybe a couple carrots and some celery, you simmer them first, you generally I do my potatoes and my carrots for a little while, then add my celery because the celery can overcook, And then you just add the meat. The meat doesn't have to cook for any length of time at all because it's completely cooked, completely tender, and that's a very quick stew out of your canned venison. Um, all of those are great methods, and there's a lot of other things you can do. But the base um, way to store meat forever, basically, is biltong. Once a piece of meat is turned into biltong, it's almost like mummifying the meat. And uh, it will outlast you in, in reality. Uh, the only thing it will do is become more and more dry. So if you want to keep your biltong from over-drying, once it's reached the consistency that you want, put it in a jar or put it into a Ziploc bag or a vacuum sealer, and that will stop the drying process. If you, if you store it in something that allows any air exposure, it will continue to dry out on you and eventually become fully dry. Nothing wrong with it. I just like my biltong to be a little bit moist in the center. If I can, if I slice it with a knife, I like to be able to look and see the center be just barely not turned black like the rest of the meat. Uh, biltong's also very, uh, good to cook with. You can take a big stick of biltong, slice it thin, uh, and, and saute it with, uh, with some vegetables. Uh, biltong does not have to just be gnawed on, but you're gonna have a hard time not just gnawing on it. Best way to eat your biltong at night with a flashlight under a blanket so no one comes and takes it away from you. Uh, if you let me choose between jerky and biltong, I'm going to pick biltong every time. Again, I'll pu publish a, a link today in the show notes for you so you can see my instructional video on making biltong. But I would give all of those methods a try with that many deer. And I would really experiment with things. Some of the things, like I said, I want to learn to make my own hams uh, from deer meat, especially... Uh, the back legs, I had a pro, I had, I had a lot of deer one year and I had to make two and they were really good. But the back legs make such great steaks for grilling. It was a little tough to do. And if I only had one or two deer for the year, I wouldn't want to do it. But those front shoulders are pretty much either cut that off for hamburger meat or you make them as a roast. You cook them like a, like a, a pot roast really long until they get really tender and fall apart. Those, the guy wasn't really, he had actually never done front shoulders that way before. And he said he had only used about half of the seasoning, so he only charged me about half price. And there was a lot of tallow to cut around and all. But it took a piece of meat that was otherwise not really that great and made it something really unique and uh, really interesting. The lower shoulder, so when you got a shoulder on a deer, there's really two parts that I call shoulder. One is that blade part. That's the part I'm talking about making the ham. The lower shoulder is great for cutting up as stew meat. It's great for canning. Uh, it's great if you take two front shoulders together and put them in a crock pot and do that like a... Uh, the lower shoulders again, do that like a pot roast. That is absolutely exceptional. You can do anything with that meat, but that upper shoulder, um, it does have a lot of tallow and a lot of bindings in it. And by making it into a ham and just kind of setting it out and slowly slicing pieces off of it, that was really good. And that's one of the reasons I want to learn to make my own ham. Um, the ribs on a deer 
I pretty much cut the easy meat to get off the ribs, turned that into a hamburger, and the rest of it uh, is uh, used to make stock and then discarded. It's just never been worth it to me. There's so much tallow layered in between there. Uh, one of the really nice things to fry up, though, where you would get the bacon from a hog, the bottom of the ribs down to the uh, to the to the, the lower body, that skin flap that holds the, the the guts in, that piece of muscle there. You want to do some trimming and all, but that fried up like a flank steak, basically, absolutely exceptional. Uh, you got me really going there. I went ten minutes on this. Uh, definitely, we'll do a whole show on preserving meat and uh, fishing game. Uh, great question. Let's go ahead and take one more, and we'll be done for today. Hi, Jack. Jason from PA here. Um, I'm looking at planting about half a dozen trees this year, and one of the questions I have is that a lot of the trees I see listed are apparently, like, grafted, so it's like if you're going to plant a, you know, walnut or a pear tree, it's grafted to the base of some other kind of tree. Um, I mean, I kind of understand grafting. Um, just not sure what the advantage, disadvantage of doing this is. I mean, it seems to me that they... Um, grow a little quicker or start producing quicker is what they claim. Um, should I be looking for a true tree that's the whole tree and nothing but the tree or is a grafted tree okay? Uh, maybe you can fill me in on this. Thanks, Jack. Well, you'll get different opinions on this based on who you ask. And a lot of people will tell you that you're better off with trees on their own rootstock that eventually they'll be healthier and grow taller. And I think there's some case for that, especially with certain varieties. Um, if you're doing hazels, for instance, hazelnuts, you want a hedge. A lot of the grafted varieties, they don't sucker and spread the way that a, a, one on its own rootstock does. So there's a purpose-built issue. I know Marjorie in her Backyard Food Production DVD is not real enamored with the results that she's had from fruit trees on her property um, with the grafted uh, rootstock varieties, but I think it's more about soil issues there because the soil is so sandy, uh, water issues because the soil doesn't hold back the water, nutrient issues for the young trees because the soil doesn't hold back the water and the nutrients. And if she were practicing, which neither one of us knew about at the time she was planting hugel culture, I think she might have better results with some of those grafted varieties. The reason for grafted varieties, uh, there's a couple. A big one is disease resistance. A lot of trees, filbert for instance, uh, can be susceptible to filbert blight. A lot of diseases enter through root systems by taking a disease-resistant rootstock and grafting a less resistant variety of tree to it. The tree gets some buffering from disease. Uh, that's a big one. The biggest reason, though, is for dwarfing. And let's look at an apple tree. We plant just about any variety of apple, and we plant it on its own rootstock. And eventually we end up with a tree that is massive. The canopy is 20 feet or more up in the air, and maybe 60 feet across or more. And if we're just planting an apple tree that's going to sit out in a grove and let its fruit fall and do something like feed hogs or cattle with it, That's a great tree if we have the space and that's our use. But if we want to pick fresh apples, it's pretty hard to pick an apple that's 25 feet up a tree. And there's some things we can do. You can get like pickers on poles. I used to go pick pears that way. There's a little basket with some hooks on it. <coughs> you put that on the end of a pole 
And you can reach up into that canopy and you can get a lot of your fruit. But a lot of your fruit is still going to go to waste. It's going to fall to the ground and rot. Like I said, unless it's part of your livestock feeding plan, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So we take these rootstocks that are dwarfing or semi-dwarfing, and now we take a 20-foot tree and we turn it into a 12-foot tree. Or with a true dwarf rootstock, we can take an apple tree and keep it at about 4 feet in height. And then for the suburban backyard, that's great because I have a slower canopy. I can do everything in miniature. I can put netting over it. I can intensely manage four apple trees and get more production out of four dwarf trees and more variety and more duration than I can out of a couple larger trees because the fruit's not going to go to waste. So a big part of the rootstock and the grafting is to control the size of the tree. The other thing is disease resistance. And then there's another part that's vigor. I can take an apple that has kind of a, a, a rootstock that's just not very vigorous. So this is where the speed comes in. The quicker the roots expand, the faster the tree can grow. The biggest limiting factor on tree growth isn't the, 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 the upper part of the tree that you see. It's the lower part you don't see. In other words, if I plant a tree and its roots don't grow fast, but the tree does, what's going to eventually happen? The tree will fall over. It will weigh more than it's capable of holding back. Or it will grow itself to death. How will that happen? Well, it will get so large that its water requirements are huge, but its root system is not deep and, and wide enough And it can't pull in enough water because a tree is basically a hydraulic pump. So by putting a more vigorous rootstock on a tree that will expand and grow faster, regardless of how large or small I'm growing that tree, I can get it to maturity faster. So those are your three factors. Time to maturity, disease resistance, and controlling the final size of the tree, those are your primary reasons for uh, grafting trees onto rootstock. It's also easier to produce a lot of trees fast, from just a commercial aspect. If I want to produce a hundred apple trees that I can sell to the public, and I have one set of root system growing rootstock for me, and I have a couple big apple trees that I can take graftable branches off of, I can turn out a hundred trees a year easily that are big enough to sell. If I start them all from seed and grow them on their own rootstock, I'm going two to three years before I get that tree to generally what's considered a marketable seedling in today's day and age. So that's the other factor as well. Uh, personally, I think that it's something you, you buy based on your situational need. If I'm going to buy a native tree that grows in my area and I can get it on native rootstock and the size of the tree is acceptable for its application, it's going to make a lot of sense for me to buy it on its native rootstock. If I'm going to buy an apple tree and I want to put four apple trees in a small area in a mini orchard, I'm going to want semi-dwarfing or dwarfing rootstock to help me control along with pruning the overall size of the tree. If I'm going to plant hazels and I want a couple hazel trees spread out and I don't want them growing together, I'm going to use grafted rootstock to prevent the suckering action. If I want a hedgerow of hazels that are going to act as a living fence, I'm going to put it on native rootstock. So to me it's much more situational than whether one is good and one is bad. Anyway, that was a great question. I'm sure that's helped a lot of people making choices uh, for fruit trees in the coming spring and summer growing season. Uh, so now you know all about plant rootstocks as well, folks. Great group of questions today. Remember, folks, if you want to have your question answered on the air, simply pick up your phone and dial 866-65-THINK. 
I'm working on questions about three weeks old right now. I'm going to try to do two of these shows next week to catch up. Because, of course, last Friday I didn't do this show because of my laryngitis. hope you guys can hear my voice is still strained, but it's getting a hell of a lot better. I appreciate you guys uh, giving me the time to heal my voice and understanding I had to just do some interview shows and take a couple days off uh, to get by this. I do take it seriously. I try to have this show for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. I think I'm back on track with that now. Hopefully Monday my voice will be even stronger than it is today. Uh, I feel kind of crippled when my voice isn't what it's meant to be. Uh, it's one of the things I think has made the show a success, and uh, I'm glad it's coming back. Again, thanks to everybody that called in today. And remember, whatever you do, folks, whatever you do on a daily basis, realize that you're a little bit closer to preparedness and liberty and independence or a little bit further away. Try to take one small step every day from now until the day they lay you to rest toward liberty and independence. And not only will you build it for yourself, but by being an example, you will build it for others. And most importantly, you will hand it down to their children and their children's children. And they'll continue to live and believe in it long after you're gone. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.